Welcome back to Chasing the Apex. I'm your host, Sid Sudhir, and today I'm sitting down with the one and only Callum Eilat. Callum started off his career as a very successful kart racer before being picked up by the Red Bull Junior team and placed in the FIA F3 Championship with Carlin. Since then, he has become a member of the Ferrari Driver Academy and competed in the F2 Series for two seasons, finishing runner-up to Mick Schumacher in 2020. This past year, Callum held roles as the reserve driver for Alfa Romeo Sauber and test driver for Ferrari. However, he has now turned his sights towards IndyCar, securing a seat with Hunko's Hollinger Racing for 2022. As you can see, Callum is a driver with plenty of pedigree even at the young age of 23. So, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the show, Callum. Um, I'm extremely excited to be speaking with you today, and I have plenty of questions written up here, so I guess I'll just jump right into it. So first things first, I guess this is sort of old news now, but um, you will be on a full season program in IndyCar next year with Hunko's Hollinger Racing. So what is the goal you are setting for yourself with this first full season in IndyCar? Yeah, I mean, obviously, firstly, it's uh, a great opportunity from coming from Europe to, to enter straight in um, to IndyCar full season. A bit different with ovals, considering to what I'm used to. Um, but I think the, the targets this year, um, obviously is to get the most performance wise possible, um, especially in the circumstances that I know. So the street and the road courses, um, the ovals will be a learning, um, learning progression for me, but hopefully we can do a good job. And then it's to, to develop as a team and to, you know, try and be as consistent as possible because looking at IndyCar and the other teams, the the biggest problem or issue, shall I say, is, is that the teams fluctuate in, in position. I mean, I remember the, the three races I did last year, uh, Penske, for example, the first race I arrived, I, I qualified with those guys. Um, obviously, that was a bit further behind for what they should have been. But then if you look at a championship, uh, the, the consistency is really, really key. So I, just, I think that would be the other target is once we get the performances to try and maintain it. Mm -hmm. And so is driving an IndyCar quite comparable to driving an F2 car? Yeah, I, the way I would describe it is like the chassis kind of feeling um, in terms of the weight distribution, steering feel and everything is quite similar but the the tires are so different so running pirelli's on the formula 2 um which was a really high degradation kind of soft tire um to the firestones in indycar which are really quite hard and stiff and you end up sliding more and wrestling the car a lot more so even though it was fundamentally quite similar the characteristics are so so different i think you know, the, the IndyCar is a very big, bulky car. Um, so even if like the front end characteristics of the chassis and that might be the same, maybe it's maybe it's a bit more different rear woods with how the central gravity is and stuff like that. So it, it, it's comparable. And I would say it's one of the closest. Um, F2 is probably the closest to IndyCar I've, I've, I've felt. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like I, I wouldn't even compare anything to Formula One, that's for sure. Yeah, I think it was, I think maybe if I'm remembering correctly, I was reading that Nicky Bryce, when you guys were all doing your uh, postseason testing, he like, I think the word he used to describe it was like heavy, that an IndyCar feels a lot more heavy. 
Yeah, it, it's a weird one because it's quite it is quite different to anything I've driven. Just because you're always fighting the car, and I, I think you know from watching F2 or F1 that if you ever end up fighting that car, you end up going slower in Formula Two and Formula One. It's it's just you ever see someone make a correction, the lap's over. Uh, whereas IndyCar, you're kind of encouraged to do that from start to finish to get the most out of the the car. So. It is quite a different philosophy. I would say it's closer to like a kind of go-kart style. Um, but that's what makes, you know, it so entertaining for the racing and for the drivers and for the fans, I think. Mm -hmm. And so was it Ferrari who found you a seat in IndyCar or was it more of a push from you personally to make a move to the series? It was more a push for me personally, or it was a complete push for me personally. Um, you know, they completely supported the uh, the idea of it. I, I just think because, you know, F1 was, was it's a very difficult environment at the moment. Um, and obviously you need to have a lot behind you to, to get there. Um, but I, I, when I when I saw that that wasn't really going to work and, you know, quite early on the direction that it's going, um, and at the same time that I, I noticed that it wasn't going in the right direction, this opportunity for IndyCar came up. And then I, I had a similar situation last year where um, uh, where for Formula One, it was, um, you know, obviously very quickly changed that I wasn't going to be making it with from the Formula Two side. And I didn't, I didn't get... Uh, I'm just trying to think how I'll say this. I didn't commit to the idea of IndyCar, and you miss you miss out on all the opportunities if you don't commit to something straight away. Yeah. So I think this one I pursued a lot more and a lot more directly. Uh, and then very quickly, I was doing the first race at Portland um, with Hunkos, and then on that weekend or week, we decided we would continue the other two, three races, and then that basically meant for next season at that point already. So is, is a seat in Formula One completely out of the picture now, or are you just kind of focusing on IndyCar for the time being? Uh, no, I, it's not out of the picture. Um, it's not out of the picture at all. I think, you know, it's gonna, it's a lot more difficult because you kind of, with, with my year out, I would say I, I was a bit out of the shop window Maybe, maybe from a political point, I don't know. Um, but I wasn't out in terms of results or anything. Um, but uh, this, this or last year now made me uh, think that, you know, it's important to, to start to become a professional driver in terms of whatever route you take. And I didn't want to just limit myself to um, the development side of Formula One because you can kind of get stuck in a cycle of just doing that. And I want to, I want to race. I want to try and get as much as I can from my career and IndyCar. It's, if you'd get it right, it's a very, very good opportunity and better than possibly staying in GTs and the European side of the endurance racing. Um, and, you know, recently with the U S and that there's been quite a push to have a guy maybe from IndyCar or an American, um, go into go into formula one so if you get it right and you do a good job possibly that could be something that can bring you back um but then again if i get it right and i enjoy it then i might just stay there um 
and and pursue it that way. But uh, like I said before, there's a lot that has to come with the package to Formula One, and it's not just like results on the day and see see where you, which team you end up in. Yeah, so I mean, IndyCar, it's kind of an exciting uh, place to be right now. And I've talked to so many drivers like about this. And I mean, I think even Anam and I were having this discussion the other day. Um, and, you know, you mentioned it, I think, with guys like Colton Herta, um, Otto Award, a lot of people have been talking about potentially themselves finding an F1 seat in the future. Um, so, like, why is IndyCar such an exciting prospect for so many European, like highly talented European drivers to come over and drive right now? Um. I think there's there's a couple of things to it. Number one is the the competition side of it. So obviously with F2, you you find a lot of good drivers and the whole junior single seater ladder, you find a lot of good drivers. Um, but IndyCar, you've got a high concentration of the really experienced guys who have who are very good and have been there every year, and the now the newer guys who are showing their talent and showing what they can do. And that's a really good measure of how good someone can be. Number one, when you get the the comparison to the experienced guys. Um, and then the other thing I think is the the whole market in America, maybe for sponsors and people. The 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 push the push. I I think there's a, there's a good push for it, and I can see it within IndyCar as well. Um, there we there's a big increase in um the tv coverage and percentages of people watching and you can see that it's heading in a good direction you know it's it's on the up um and i think that that is at a personal level as well so maybe with more people wanting to invest in into a team into a driver and maybe the reward at some point is you know someone going into formula one if it's the right person mm -hmm. And so for, for you personally, you landing at Hunkos, like, is it still you need to go out and find sponsors and try to put a deal together? Or was it Ferrari kind of helping you out with that once you decided that, you know, that was the correct move for you? Um, no, the let's just say I'm a full professional driver um, and there was not uh, there was not a need from Ferrari to, to support on that um so no we we've got the the full package um with indycar to to kind of do the best job possible and that was trying to in, included trying to get the fastest driver they could i guess yeah well so i guess in this past year or now it's like 2021 um in addition to those final few indycar races you also competed at Lamont, finishing third in class with iron links so um, is that a future avenue for you or something that you like to continue doing for the time being? Um, I, I love Le Mans. It was a really special race to do. Um, and you do get that feeling going there of why it's a, such a special race. Um, it's a shame that there's a clash next year. I think it's between Road America and Le Mans, um, which means I wouldn't be able to do it again. Um, so yeah, it's not something I would rule out at all. Um, and I'm quite open with these things, but, uh, I, I wanted to focus still on the single seater, um, route for a little bit longer. Um, just cause I think there was more to, more to prove and more to do as a sing singular driver in that sense. So now I just want to backtrack in your career a little bit, if I may. Um, I know that you had a brief stint with the Red Bull Junior team. So 
How did you end up as a Ferrari Academy driver? I'm, okay, to, to kind of put it into perspective, 2014, I was karting, last year of my karting career, um, I quite a successful year again. Um, and I remember in the middle of that, I went to Silverstone Grand Prix, met with Helmut Marco, um, and he basically uh, was like, okay, you're going to Formula 3, you'll do it with Carlin. You, you know, as a member of the Red Bull Junior team, of course, you don't say no to an opportunity like that. So I went in. Um, actually, to be fair, I didn't have a bad year. It wasn't amazing. But considering the guys in, in that year and how competitive the grid was, looking back at it, it really wasn't that bad. Um, I think I finished 11th or 12th in the championship. I mean, there were, we had... Charles Leclerc finishing fourth, George Russell was like seventh or eighth, Albon seventh or eighth, something like that. You know, it was just a stacked grid of, of guys, of, I think 40, 40 drivers across the championship, maybe more. Um, anyway, uh, that came to an end at the end of the year. Um, we, we parted ways and then I kind of did one and a half years on my own. And then uh, 2017, um, I had Guan Yuzu as my teammate in Prema, and he was part of the Ferrari Driver Academy. And uh, going from there, I think Poe, we had Massimo, who was the, the boss of the FDA at the time. He, um, he was there, and I think I, remember, I, I crashed in one of the races, but from the lead. And he was like, oh, mate, you're so stupidly fast, um, but we, we think you need to control a little bit other other aspects and you know bring it back a little bit um and then from there uh he's like let's talk let's sort something out and then by the end of the year we i'd signed and i was doing macau with with the fda um so yeah i think it became it came from me being stupidly quick and yeah nice. <laughs> that was that well this is something that I wanted to ask an academy driver for a while. I mean, I forgot to ask this to the last academy driver I talked to. Um, but, you know, if you're if you're someone that doesn't come from, you know, Mazepin type money, do you think that being part of an academy is like your best shot at getting an F1 seat? I think it's, it's 95% of the time it's fundamental. Um, you know, my, my reasoning for it if I take apart the prestige of uh, the, the companies in that sense um, is the opportunities that it would give you so with, with Ferrari they were involved with Alfa Romeo and Haas um, so that that way there was like four seats technically available and you know it, it, it's statistically that's quite a large number compared to maybe some other teams um, then on top of that, you know, if they have a tradition of bringing drivers through and that, you have a higher percentage chance. Um, I, I, you know, there's there's arguments to this of I uh, do you try and do it on your own if you have the financial ability to do it on your own, which is difficult because normally there would be like a subsidiary in that sense if you're doing well. Um, do do you do it on your own and then the last point make a decision to to jump to a team which is possible um, but 
the argument is why would they give you the support for Formula One? You know, it's it's not that simple. The other side of things is I like to get in with a team early and build the relationship um, to potentially then go into Formula One. I think that's more important because then they see value in you, whether you help develop the staff and, you know, there's there's more of an incentive on that side. So I, I, I think it's always better to be a part of something. Um, the problem is then, is it a gamble or not? I don't, you know, you always find out in the end in that sense but you get value out of the situation no matter what I think both sides that's that's the most important thing for your career and as a driver I see yeah and that's definitely something I'm starting to see like it's kind of an investment from both sides and it's a bit of like a driver having to kind of make a commitment for their career and that's a big step but at least from my perspective um being a part, part of an academy seems like a really good deal um so during the 2020 f2 season uh, you of course had a great battle with Mick Schumacher uh, narrow, narrowly missing out on winning the drivers' championship. So, do you think that you know the 2020 season was your best season yet as a racing driver? I think it was. It, yeah, um, I would say throughout my career, which is why it's a bit of a pain in the ass. I had flashes of brilliance um, where I really showed my speed. That actually I came from karting with because. The whole point of going with Red Bull and that was to kind of follow Max's footsteps. And at the time, uh, yeah, I was probably I was probably the most decorated casting driver that finished in 2014. So I was meant to be the one, you know, that it kind of continues that going into cars. But um, I would say that obviously first year was straight into Formula 3. Not easy, didn't do a bad job. The next year, actually, I was with... Van, Van Amersfoort, we did a we did a good job. Um, I, I there was potential for, I think third in the championship championship that year going into the final round, but we picked up some penalties for. Uh, I think we underfueled or something, so that was a bit of a missed one. But otherwise, second year in Formula Three with Van Amersfoort would have been P three P four in the championship, which would have been good. Then I did a third year with Crema. Um, I think I got the most poles that year, so it was number one very quick. Some two, two stupid mistakes earlier on in the championship, and then that kind of put me on the back foot a bit towards the end. Uh, and at that point, that was when I was like, okay, you know, I'm very fast, but I need to find a little bit more out of this. There's more to that um, as a driver. 2018 was third in GP3. Found a lot more my consistency, but I lost speed somehow. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't exploit the car like I'd, I'd wanted to. Um, wasn't, wasn't, yeah, just wasn't able to with the tools that I had to kind of find something comfortable for myself. Um, then 2019 was a tough year. Uh, again, flashes of speed, especially towards the end. Um, but didn't didn't really put it together as a championship, and you know, with the feature race and the sprint race, I wasn't able to capitalize on the points in the feature race, uh, and therefore sometimes I would be on the edge of getting it for the sprint race, and then we had a few mechanicals. So in Monaco, I just had an issue on the grid with the fire when I was P two on the for the feature race, which would have been a good result. Things like that. Um, then uh, yeah, I, I think putting it together. So 2020 was the fastest driver on the grid, which was good to showcase the potential that I had. 
Um, Formula Two is obviously a very highly watched uh, championship, especially with Mick that year. There was a lot of eyes on it. So it was good to show. And then from a overall consistency, I was never out of the top two of the championship. That meant I was always there. Yes, I had ups and downs on the weekends, you know, a few little missed opportunities, but it's not easy to put everything together. Um, and, you know, I, I've changed teams every year of my career. It's not like I stayed with the same team and built a relationship with one specific engineer. You know, I was always changing. It's the same story for, I would say, like 80% of the drivers. But then there's a select few that go and, you know, continue with the same team. And it's a bit of an advantage. That means you're always on a discovery process of what uh, what works best for you um, with that specific team. But no, it's it, honestly, I, I, I was very thankful to have the opportunity that I did. And for my career, that's helped massively, you know, to kind of put everything into that year and Okay, it wasn't the win, but it was it was a lot of lot of amazing moments where I could say, you know, this is what I can do. Yeah. And after that, you know, you did so well in that 2020 season that a lot of people thought that you deserved an F1 seat after that season, right? So, I mean, when that unfortunately didn't happen, did you feel kind of hard done by that? Or, or were you able to kind of pick yourself up quickly and move on from that? Uh, I had like a two week period where I felt, you know, it was a bit un, not unjust, you know, deserve is a very weird word in the sense that I, I think that I'd done enough to, to warrant an opportunity um, and considering how close I was results wise and what I'd shown. Um, it was it was quite tough to not get it, but I, I moved on because at the end of the day, you know, there was another opportunity um, hopefully coming. And uh, if I worked and showed what I could do behind the scenes, that, that, that might warrant it. So there was, you know, the element of hope again and a, a second chance. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I kind of moved on. Um, but, yeah, I did have a two-week period where it was a bit tough. You know. I mean, did you feel maybe a bit unlucky considering some of the circumstances? Because when I try to think back to like that batch of drivers, um, you know, obviously Mick Schumacher, that's a name that there's probably going to be a lot of pull that they want that to be in Formula One. Uh, Yuki Sonoda, he had a you know a long-standing relationship with Honda, who obviously would, would like to have a Japanese driver. Um, even Mazepin to a certain extent, that was kind of like a necessary, uh, necessary means because Haas needed some money that Mazepin would provide, right? So do you think it was maybe like, you know, you, you thought that you provided um, or proved your quality and just maybe got a little bit unlucky with how the situation turned out? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, the tough thing is obviously uh, what I've learned so far, and not, not just with Formula One, but the kind of, well, I mean, it is specific to Formula One, but, you know, unfortunately, from such a young age, I've done this on my own. Honestly, like from from 16, I was there on my own going to, to the races. And like life, it's a discovery process. And you know that you've got to do the best for yourself because sometimes, you know, other people aren't going to be there for you in that sense. 
Um, and I think similar circumstances have happened to so many other drivers throughout history. You know, like speaking to a lot of people, a lot of people had a similar situation to me, whether it was a sponsor that was going to and then pulled out or a manager that didn't get it right for them or something. Um, and, you know, you kind of go, OK, yeah, that won't happen to me, you know. Um, but it yeah it's it's not easy um so like i think the tough thing is managing it yourself and discovering okay this this is how the world works and yeah maybe it was bad timing um but yeah i, I think the, that the only thing missing for me really was something behind you know whether it's financial or not um that's that's the 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 missing factor as a driver i felt like i did enough um obviously you can always do more um if i'd have won the championship honestly i don't think it would have made a difference in the short term um you know most decisions are already made before the end of these championships anyway mm -hmm. um uh maybe in the long run it would have made more people feel sorry for me uh but i don't know if it would have changed really the the situation um yeah, like I said, I think as a driver, I'd shown that I was competent enough to, to warrant an opportunity. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, you know, now I'm just focusing on getting the most out of being a professional driver and whatever opportunities come up, whether it's F1 or not, you know, you've got to explore all the opportunities. Yeah. And so, well, after that, that 2020 season, was it in like, were you planning to continue maybe another season in Formula 2 2021? Or, um, was that just kind of something that you weren't really able to work out after the end of 2020? No, look, I had a few, especially fans asking this because, you know, from uh, from a simplistic point of view, it was like, well, why didn't you do it again and win? Number one, by the time I knew that Formula One wasn't happening for sure, because obviously I put all my eggs into that basket, um, there was minimal teams available. So the team that I had competed with was not available. Uh, the other top teams were not, were not available. They're all full. Maybe one could make space, but that's then, you know, number one being very unfair to another driver if they'd already done a deal or whatever. Then we forget the financial aspect of it all. You know, you, it's, I spent a long, 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 long time searching for well, actually, to be fair, less money than what other people would have been trying to find for some of those seats. Um, but still trying to find that amount of money that's needed for a Formula 2 seat is not something you can do within the space of one month that you need to to, to sign for another year. I mean, it was, it, it's been year processes before to, to kind of make that amount. So to then decide I'm doing that plus getting the team opportunity it just wasn't feasible so i didn't i didn't even consider it there was opportunities to race in formula two again um uh where it wouldn't have cost anything but i didn't feel that that was the right thing to do for my career and i wasn't happy with the format of the weekends because they changed to the free races with the two sprint races um last year so putting that together um it was not an opportunity 
I wanted to focus more on the, the F1 development stuff because with the result that I'd had, then plus the year of focusing on the development, I thought that would have been something, you know, just to add P2 with all the speed that I had, I could then just add on top of that. And I wouldn't put anything at risk in that sense because there's only one place you can go better than what I did. And especially with the third year, you need to make sure you win. Um, so I didn't I didn't take that risk. And, you know, the GT stuff was, was a great experience from a different side of motorsport. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, to be fair, the first six months of last year, and it's now last year, I need to keep remembering that, um, was was really, really good for me to do, like kind of a no pressure year where you were just learning, not really, that you weren't killing yourself for results in that sense. So it was it was nice to do. Obviously, it got stressful in the middle, but it was a, it was a great thing for me to do at one point in my career to just kind of relax a bit more on stage. So would you say that that fear of backtracking is, is almost like a reason why a lot of times you'll see drivers finish really well in Formula 2 and then not compete in the season after? Because, I mean, two drivers that come to mind, first, Oscar Piastri, who obviously just won the title, right? And he's not going to race mm -hmm. at all next year and then I think even thinking back to Nicky Bryce after that you know he won in I believe it was 2018 and then after that he, he was another um, another example of someone who might have gotten some some say should have gotten an F1C and then um, so do you think it's more like that the pressure of like you know in your case you finish second and the only next spot is first right for them they they won the championship so it's kind of like they can only go down from there well, uh, the just for your information, the rule is if you win the championship, you can't compete again. So by rule, you can't. Um, but I think to put it into their perspective, singularly, Oscar, he's won everything he's competed in. Somehow he's done a very good job of that. But he's, he's won everything that he's competed in. And uh, he it doesn't make sense for him to focus on doing something else other than formula one so because you know if he if he doesn't go to formula one that's to the system that's just unfair you know that's 100 you can say that that's not how it should work um so I, I understand completely to to take the year out and focus full on the development for Formula One and learning as much as possible. Because actually, to be fair, sitting on the sidelines, you can see a lot. You can understand how it works and you can really put your, your mind into what you're meant to be doing on this side. So when you've got all the results, it, it's like another additional thing and you can really integrate and learn how to do it. So from his point of view, it... it it makes full sense from Nick's when yes it, very similar situation to me I would say in the long run that you know you you justify that you can you should get an opportunity in F1 but the opportunity hasn't presented itself you're not going to put all your eggs into the basket of F1 because the chances are less and you know with with the way the world works you need to kind of become a professional driver and establish yourself because if you keep taking that risk of going into Formula One uh, and it keeps not working out, you have a two-year expiration date in that sense. So then you're then you're done. You know, you miss the opportunity. Like if you don't 
get it right in those two years in GTs, for example, if you don't warrant that you're a good enough driver, you won't even get a seat paid in GTs. Um, so I, I understand completely his point of view to go and do Formula E, um, to go and do the LMP stuff, to establish yourself as a good driver in other series or great driver in his case. Um, and actually, to be fair, I would say that he, after winning Formula 2, it was clear that F1 was not an option because of the circumstances at the time. And I would say at that point, he dipped um, in terms of the potential to get a Formula 1 seat, not because of his abilities, but just at the situation. And with doing all the work that he's done within Formula E and doing such a good job, it's actually gone up again. And, you know, you could see at the end of last year or middle of last year, he had more talk about going to F1 than when he was in F2, you know, or even after the F2 at that point. So I think it can do good things for your career, but that's what's the difference between those two, I'd say. And that's why, you know, the focus is never on F2. It's to see what more you can get because F2, again, it's not, it's not a paid, you don't get paid, you know, you, you gamble um, by doing F2, whereas anything else you, you need to, you need to become a professional driver. That's what we all want to be, you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, Nick and like the driver market this past year, um, you know, you were a reserve driver for Alfa Romeo Sauber. So how closely were you monitoring the driver situation this season with all the different changes that it, they were undergoing? Uh, yeah, I knew everything maybe a couple months in advance. There's a weird effect. I, it's like a media effect. So whatever's going on, um, the media talks about it like two weeks later three weeks later um and you know I could kind of judge my chances a little bit by how much it would be spoken about later on because my name from the you know I wouldn't have had the opportunities I did if there wasn't a chance you know I wouldn't have been doing fp1s if, if my name wasn't in the uh the basket but it was very clear that I was not a priority after a while um just just situationally i don't you know i don't blame anyone for it or anything like that it's just the opportunity didn't present itself at the right time um but yeah obviously you know to to say i sat there and didn't push for myself is is not not the case at all um and people did push for me but you know it, it has to align with everyone's everyone's thinking and of course there are um there are sponsorship reasons there are financial reasons there are there are many different things it's it's a it's a whole business at the end of the day so you've got to you've got to fit into all those circumstances um so yeah uh i i tried i i did try very very hard and it's not it's not just been you know since i arrived as a reserve driver in april um it was already starting from the end of the year before that i was pushing for it you know the simulator work with putting myself there i mean i i'd i'd done tests from 2019 2020 i did the end of season test in 2020 with alpha um yeah so i i was i was pushing like crazy i did the pre-season testing with alpha and mayor before anything was even announced not not driving but i was there behind the scenes 
you know, you're you're fully involved trying to show what you can do in that sense. Um, but like I said, it, it just it, the opportunity didn't come about. Um, but I can't say I couldn't I couldn't really have done much more from a physical side within what what was going on. Uh, this is a slightly more fun question, but uh, what was it like working with Kimmy and Antonio at Alfa Romeo? Um, are there any interesting anecdotes you can give us from being around the Iceman and Italian Jesus? Look, he he doesn't say much, Kimmy, um, within a personal side of things. Um, but I, within a motorsport side of things, he really cares. He's focused. Um, yeah, he's, he's very good at what he does. Um, and you can hear it and how clear he is. He doesn't waste time. And I think you can see that on the radio. He's very, very direct. Um, but that's a character of him. that's just like, give me what I need. No bullshit. Go. Um, and he surprised me. To be fair, I think it was in Brazil Thursday was my birthday. And first thing in the morning when he came in, he said, happy birthday. And no, this is at 9 a.m., you know, and I was like, uh, okay, how would you know it's my birthday? Like at 9 a.m., what, what, what makes you know? So that was quite, um, you know, he hadn't spoken to anyone on the way in. Like that was what was weird for me. Um, so from that point, he surprised me a bit on the personal side because obviously, you know, he does pay attention. Um, and then with Antonio, I know for a long time with Ferrari, how good he is on the simulator, um, how fast he can be. Um, you know, it, it was just, I think they, they got on very well together, Kimi and Antonio. Um, just a good dynamic. There wasn't, there wasn't like this, fighting between teammates because you know Kimmy didn't really care on that side what was going on um obviously Antonio would want well they would both want to beat each other but there was no there was no bad vibes at all they just got on with each other and tried to do the best job possible and get the most out of it circling back towards IndyCar with how we started that conversation um there are a few things that we left unturned um so first things first um when we're talking about who goes Hollinger racing Funkos, obviously, they've been massively successful in the road to Indy in those lower categories, right? But they don't have as much um, experience running at the IndyCar level. So do you kind of, I know you were speaking a little bit about this being like a growth experience, something like a learning experience. Do you kind of see that as like a learning experience for everyone then? Just because it's like everyone's kind of getting to grips with this series? Yes, uh, of course. It, it's a big learning experience overall for the team. Um, I think we, it, the situation will be quite different to how it was for the free race at the end of last year, because at the end of last year, really, it was so last minute to do those races that with the people that we had, we had one, one day of testing um, where we had quite a few issues on the day and stuff, so we couldn't get through like the team building side of things that you would do and understanding how everyone operates. Um, so we, we literally just went straight into the races and it was like a discovery process through that because obviously, you know, from my side, I'm learning the car, the tracks, and then the team is also a discovery process. And it wasn't like, ah, here's the car, drive it. I had to kind of 
build with the team because, you know, there were still things that weren't perfect, whether it was, uh, um, you know, shift lights, that sort of stuff, the, the, the simple stuff, you know, it, we were still trying to, trying to find it. Um, but that, that was just, that was just a situation and, you know, it, um, it wasn't easy, uh, but we obviously, you know, the whole point of those is to find out what we need and what we what we need to, to improve. And whether it's with uh, the situation, the people, um, even from my side of what I might need to improve, uh, I think we've we've done a lot. There's a lot of big changes, a lot of developments gone into this year. So already the starting point from the test that I did at the end of the year last year was much, much better. You know, it was just just a massive improvement. Um, but it is still a learning process. Obviously, you know, new people, different situations. It's, it's never easy. Um, but I think, you know, we should be on for some good results for sure. And so those those final few races that you've been last year, was that the first time that um, Hunkos have participated in IndyCar outside of the Indy 500? They, they'd done one or two races, I think, in 17 or 18 without without the halo. Um, yeah. The, but, but very different people. Um, I mean, to give you an idea... Uh, this, this is how different it is from the three races we did. Um, the, there is like four people continuing w being involved in the car. One is me. Second is Brad. Third is Ricardo Humcos. And fourth is, is one of the mechanics. Um, so we've got a complete, actually, to be fair, um, the data engineer as well, performance engineer. Uh, sorry, I forgot about it. <laughs> um, but but the rest, it's it's a complete new change, which is which is exciting. You know, lots of lots of changes, lots of people. Um, and for me, that's just uh, yeah, it shows the level of commitment that we have and to to try and to build something and get the most out of it. But that's explaining why it was so difficult. Those three races is honestly everyone we we had to just grab from there because you know, four, I think four or five weeks before the race, you know, trying to find people who've worked with IndyCar and are not within a team already, it was it was very difficult. But yeah, like I said, it should be good. So in a world of all these new changes, then do you think that maybe adapting to the ovals might present the biggest challenge for you in the coming year? Um, from a driving point of view, yes because it's such a different style. It's like, I was well, watching what, it what yesterday. What makes driving on the ovals so difficult? Because I think like one of the, like one of the biggest stereotypes for racing drivers, right? Like, especially over in the States is like, they always say it's like, you know, it's just people driving around in circles, right? So like for you, like approaching it as a racing driver, what makes them so difficult? Um, Okay, so I, obviously I can't speak from experience, but yesterday, for example, I watched the whole 2018 Indy 500 um, just, to, just to get an idea of it in fresh in my mind. But to, to explain it from a singular driving point of view, for example, qualifying, you've got to be flat. You've got to have full trust in the car. 
to be flat for the four laps that you do in qualifying. That means that the whole time, the whole week of practice, you have to develop the car to make it so that when you do that quality, that you trust the car 100% to be flat. Then to add on to that, you have to minimize the, the scrub that you do with the steering. So you have to have like full confidence in the car to be able to drive it as fast as possible, even though you're flat out to drive it as fast as possible to not, to not scrub the speed off. That's the qualifying side of things. Then for the race, you know, it's a 100% management type style race. You know, you can see everyone's just patient, patient until certain scenarios or certain circumstances within the race. And then you've got to be stupidly aggressive. Uh, I mean, Alex Rossi in 2018, you can see he, he takes an opportunity to just send it around the outside of five guys. But uh, like three points within that, in the two corners, you could have crashed. Um, but that's the, the the differences. And, you know, we're not talking going 100 mile an hour. We're talking 230 miles an hour that you're sending it around the outside of someone. And if you go, you don't know, but if you go one inch further to the outside, you hit the marbles and you crash. Or you get the dirty air of the car in front, you crash. Um, you you Because you have a few adjustments in the car with weight jackers and... Um, even the front wing when you come into the pits and the anti-roll bars within the car. Uh, say you haven't set those completely right and it's just on the limit of the front, you crash. You know, it's it's like you have to have full confidence in the machine that you have in different circumstances within a corner. Um, and I think that's really quite humbling, you know, that it's it's... It's you've got to drive the car number one because in the race you're lifting, you're you're trying to push as much through the corner as possible. Um, but like speaking to an arm, because he was the only one I know directly who's tested the ovals, of course, in a much slower car than the IndyCar. Um uh he was saying that, you know, like in testing, if you have a moment, like a little wiggle, you box. But imagine you've got to do 200 laps of a race with different fuel because your your fuel's decreasing, the tires are losing um losing grip i think that there's just it's so simple you know when you look at it you're like oh, yeah, you just go left you know and you've got to lift a bit shift the gears and just manage the error but when you look at it from a driving perspective of like a high-speed corner and you're just constantly doing high-speed corners and the line is so thin of getting it right or wrong when you're at the limit in a high-speed corner it's very humbling i think um and that's why it's so difficult well, my final question, and this is one that I ask to many of the drivers I speak with, um, but what do you think is the one skill you need to work on in order to push yourself to the next level as a competitor? It's a good question. Maybe I should have thought more about that. Um, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm normally very quick, very good at getting speed out of the car. Um, I would say one thing I've always lacked a little bit is racing circumstances. Um, I think it maybe stems from the fact that I didn't do like Formula 4 uh, and I went straight into Formula 3 where there was downforce that I didn't really practice so much the racecraft um, in a car. So I, I think that I would say more circumstances I've lost out than gained. Um, in a in a 
one-on-one -on -one situation like if the cars are equal and that's an all you know if you're in equal situations um i'd say 2020 i had a very good year of you know passing and overtaking and doing a good job coming back through when i had the momentum but i think there's some situations where for example you're a bit compromised because you've got dirt on your tires or you've had to defend and i i would say i i i i, I percentagely came out worse than i should have sometimes whether it was on a time perspective or a position perspective i think i could have done a better job on that side as a person as a driver i would hope i'm a nice guy and do the do the right things um but yeah i would say that's that was probably the one that's been with me the most that i've tried to improve on in the last couple of years but i think i'm a lot better than what i was but you know yeah well callum thank you for making some time to come on to the show today um best of luck with this coming season and hopefully i can catch you at road america in indianapolis as i know that'll be uh, those two races should be a little closer to me yeah let me know thank you very much for this by the way it's really good fun thank you for listening to this episode of chasing the apex i apologize that the audio quality for this episode was a bit lower than usual um, i took the interview while on vacation so i wasn't in my usual setup Anyways, I hope the caliber of the guest was enough to offset my microphone, and I hope that you learned something new about Callum in this episode. To say the least, he was a great person to meet and definitely someone you should keep an eye on in 2022. Last but not least, if you want to continue to follow my work, you can follow me at ctp.motorsport on Instagram and at sidtalksf1 on TikTok. Thanks again for listening.